Uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for the power of your word uh, and the goodness of your word. Uh, and we pray that, uh, like the psalmist that we read before, that we would be people who keep your word uh, and love your word and rejoice at your word. Uh, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, as we've already prayed, as Chris already prayed, we pray that you would uh, convict us and bring your word to bear on our hearts uh, over the next little while as I preach. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, I wonder if you've ever heard non-Christians uh, talk about uh, the hypocrites in the church. Uh, you Christians, they say, are always saying you're so much better than everyone else, uh, that you know better about morality, uh, all that, you've got all the answers, uh, but when it all boils down, you're no better than anyone else. Uh, maybe uh, your friends say it a bit more nicely, uh, you're a nice person and all, but I've known plenty of other nice people who aren't Christians. Uh, there are nice people who are Christians, there are nice people who aren't Christians, there are awful people who are Christians and there are awful people who aren't. Christianity doesn't really make a difference. Uh, I'm sure you've heard people talk like that, it's, it's quite a common idea. Uh, it's something that uh, we see especially as well in, in media, both even fictionalised and non-fiction, uh, we see people expecting Christians to uh, to be different. Christianity, they, it's reasoned, should make a difference in people's lives. Uh, and they criticise us if it doesn't make a discernible difference. What do you think? Are they right to expect that? The answer should be yes. They should. They should be right to expect that. Uh, in fact, they're not the only ones to expect that Christianity should make a difference. Uh, God expects that. The Apostle John expects that. That's the central conceit of this passage in 1 John. That there should be a clear difference between Christians and non-Christians in terms of how we live. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to talk about that, three, uh, that difference under three headings, uh, looking at the answers to three uh, key questions. Um, so what is the first question, what is the difference between Christians and non-Christians? What is the difference between Christians and non-Christians? Uh, and the answer, as I said, uh, should be able to be seen in the way that we live. Uh, Steve talked about last week, and especially uh, he'll talk about next week, uh, that there are key differences and distinctives in the ways that we believe, the things that we say. Uh, but in these, verse, these verses in 1 John chapter 2, we're looking, the Apostle John gives us characteristics of what our Christian life looks like. The characteristics of a Christian life that mark us out from non-Christians. Uh, he does that by contrasting two people uh, in three key areas. Uh, the first contrast comes in verses 4 and 5. He says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. 
Uh, we see two people here. The first one who claims to know God, but says that God's commandments aren't a big deal. Uh, and the other person who follows what God says. Uh, often today you might hear people uh, say things like, uh, at the end of the day, what God wants from us is for us to love people. Uh, that's the main thing, you know. I, I'm not going to get bogged down uh, with religious stuff, um, that ancient stuff like uh, what the Bible says, uh, or going to church. Uh, I don't want to be one of those stuffy religious people. I'll just do what feels best and what seems like it's going to be nicest to people. Uh, God would rather I help people, you know, rather than uh, get too bogged down in, in stuffy religious things. Uh, these people also, you'll often see, have no regard for uh, commands that don't seem to have, uh, that don't seem to hurt people. Um, you often hear people talk about uh, sexual ethics like this. Um, perhaps those old laws in the Bible are, are outdated or misunderstood. Maybe they're about exploitative practices. Um, but we know, of course, because God is love, that uh, whether they're married or not, it doesn't really matter. Whatever their sexual orientation is, if two people really love each other, if they're consenting adults, they're not hurting anyone. Love is love and sex is an expression of that, so God must be in favour of it. This person has no regard for the commands of God and John says that is characteristic of a non-Christian, someone who doesn't know God. Uh, the other person, by contrast, says that if God says it, it's good enough for me. Uh, they seek to know God's will uh, as he's revealed it in his scripture, in the Bible. They seek to follow God's commands, uh, even in these so-called victimless sins. Uh, this person, John says, is the one who truly knows and loves God. Uh, in fact, it's so fundamental to the life of the Christian that twice, John says, verses 3 and 5, he says twice, by this we may know that we have come to know him. Christians obey God's word because it is God's word. And non-Christians do not. That's the first contrast John makes. Secondly, he says Christians love their brothers and sisters, but non-Christians hate them. Uh, in verses 9 to 11, we see the same sort of idea of uh, two people contrasted. Let me read those. Uh, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Uh, no one likes to say that they hate people. Uh, I remember as a kid uh, growing up in conservative Christian circles uh, and hearing people say, you must never say you hate people, just that you intensely dislike them. <laughs> Not, not sure what the difference is, but that's what we were told. Uh, in other parts of society, hate is kind of thrown around a bit more, uh, but uh, 
it's still not something you want to say of yourself. Uh, Miley Cyrus sings a song where she talks about the haters going to hate, 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 hate. Uh, talking about people who resent or dislike or criticise you because of for being who you are or doing what you want. But, of course, you would never say that about yourselves. I'm not a hater. It's the haters over there. Because being a hater makes you some sort of social criminal. Because we all know intuitively that hate is a strong word. It's a cruel word. It's a something that we don't want to be accused of. It's something that we don't think that we do. Uh, hate is, is what divides the Middle East, isn't it? It's, it's what led to Hamas's attacks on Israel last week. But here in the West, we don't hate people. We're civilised. Just don't look at the way that people debate on Facebook. We don't hate people. We just resent their privileges. We uh, avoid talking to people. We gossip and slander and we intensely dislike people, but we don't hate. Contrast that with the person in verse 10 uh, who loves his brother, John says. Uh, This person always seeks the good of his brother. They look out for what's good. They look out to do what's good for other people. They speak well of others, they forgive others, they are willing to stick up for and even spend time with people that they don't like. They have affection for other Christians, a a sense of camaraderie in our common faith. Uh, When the world has such a skewed idea of what love is, we need to be very careful as Christians that we don't uh, downplay it or, or minimise it or about it, make it about things that it's not. Uh, certainly love isn't about making other people feel nice about themselves, but that doesn't mean that love is just about hard truths or how we act regardless of how we feel, which I hear a lot of people saying. The Bible is very clear that we should be characterised by kindness and gentleness and affection, uh, as well as, of course, frank honesty and selfless actions. This is the way of Christ, and it's characteristic of the Christian life that Christians love their brothers and sisters. Uh, So Christians obey God's word, Christians love their brothers and sisters, and thirdly, Christians do God's will, uh, whereas non-Christians love the world. Uh, This is the third contrast in verses 15 and 17. Uh, John says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Uh, Verse 16 tells us what it means to love the world. Uh, that it is to be guided by worldly, physical desires. Uh, John talks about the desires of the flesh, that is the cravings of our human bodies, uh, des- the desires for sex and sleep and food and drink. The worldly person only indulges these things. They are gripped and guided by their desires. Uh, perhaps they 
try and pursue these desires in illicit ways or indulge in them to excess. But for most, the sin is not in the indulging of it or the way that they indulge it per se, but simply that they are controlled and guided by their physical desires. Whatever their body craves, they get. Uh, And in a society like ours, that's so easy to achieve, to fall into. This type of idolising of the body or of the self is characteristic of a worldly person. Uh, Another characteristic is that they follow the desires of the eyes. Uh, If you've been on the internet for any length of time, you'll have come across clickbait. Uh, Silly headlines like, uh, you'll never guess what happened when... or 10 pictures of XYZ that you need to see. Here's 14 facts that you didn't know about something or other. And you know that whatever's going to be on that list, whatever whatever happens when you click that link, it's not going to be good. It will waste your time or do something much worse. But you still want to know what number eight is on that list. Uh, There's a point in in C.S. Lewis's book, The Magician's Nephew, uh, where the protagonists come across a small magical bell. Uh, Next to the bell is a little hammer and a plaque that says, Make your choice, adventurous stranger. Strike the bell and bide the danger. Or wonder till it drives you mad what would have happened if you had. These things are the desires of the eyes. The sorts of things that catch your eye, grab your attention and draw you away from what really matters. But uh, John's not just thinking about clickbait that wastes a few seconds of your life. Uh, John means that whether the person is thinking about the next 30 seconds or the next 30 years, a worldly person only has an eye for what's attractive in this life. By contrast, the eyes of faith see what is valuable for eternity. Uh, Finally, John says the worldly person is characterised by the pride of life, or uh, depending on which version of the ESV or what translation you've got, uh, pride in possessions. In mine, it's in the footnotes, but... uh, Uh, Pride in possessions is probably the better way of translating it. Uh, This is the confidence and satisfaction that comes uh, from having wealth and power and privilege in this life. Uh, If you work like I do, uh, you'll probably hear your colleagues talking about uh, having the money that they need for holidays or uh, retirement or uh, being able to uh, buy and afford new and better things. Uh, for their home or their car. Uh, Maybe they talk about investing in their children's future. John says these are worldly concerns. Concerns of this life as opposed to eternal life. They are concerns of the world which will pass away. They're not the concerns of the person who seeks God's will, the will that abides forever. Uh, Christians are not guided by worldly desires, but by the will of God. They invest their money in eternity, uh, 
they perhaps generously give to the church or to uh, God's kingdom to others uh, to see God's kingdom grow. Their attention is drawn to not uh, is drawn to eternal matters, not uh, to uh, material things. They seek to know God and understand what He wants. Uh, and the controlling passion of their life is not their own, but God's, the will of God. Uh, Christians do not hate their brothers and sisters, but rather love them. Christians do not ignore the commands of God, but rather obey them. And Christians do not follow worldly desires, but rather the will of God. And in this, we know that we have come to know him, John told us. So that's the answer to the first question. What is the difference between Christians and non-Christians? Those three characteristics of the Christian life. Uh, I think this is a good point to answer an objection that may have been brewing in the back of your mind. Uh, and I've even heard, I've heard people say this, things like this uh, here at, at this church before. Um, it goes something like this. Is there really a difference between Christians and non-Christians in the way that we live? I mean, just last week, Steve made it abundantly clear, didn't he? Christians still sin. Uh, it's not like we're perfect uh, or that we uh, go to church because we're good people. Uh, the real, there's, the, there's no real difference between Christians and non-Christians except that we are forgiven by God. And, in, and I, I resonate with this objection in, in a very real sense, to, to a very real degree, there's truth in it. It's true that we still sin, absolutely. Uh, we wouldn't want to press this to the point where uh, we made out as though Christians are perfect or that if you... Uh, sin, you should question your salvation. That's absolutely not John's point at all. Uh, it's also true, very true, that if God had not worked in our lives, apart from the work of God in our lives, there is no difference between Christians and non-Christians. Uh, there was a reformer named John Bradford, John Bradford uh, who once saw a group of criminals being executed and he said, there but for the grace of God go I. In other words, if God hadn't graciously worked in my life, I too would be the worst of criminals, deserving of the worst punishments. In that sense, it's true that Christians are no different from non-Christians if God's work is taken out of the picture. I think this objection is also raised in the sense that uh, we don't want to give ammunition to the common stereotype about sort of holier-than-thou Christians. Uh, Certainly, the differences between the lives of Christians and non-Christians should not be the cause for arrogance or judgmentalism. And so in, in all these senses, if... You want to object that the only difference between Christians and non-Christians is the grace of God, then yes, I 100% agree. You are, you are absolutely right. But that very fact itself requires that there be a difference between Christians and non-Christians in the way that we live. How so? 
Well, that leads us to our second question. Why is there a difference between Christians and non-Christians? And I posit that the answer is the way that God has graciously worked in the life of the Christian. Uh, This especially comes out in the poem uh, that John gives in verses 12 to 14. Uh, Look at what John says about the Christians he's writing to in these verses. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Each of these statements reflects a key change uh, that God has brought about in each of our lives. Uh, some of the English translations don't bring this out very well, but uh, John, the way that John frames these things in Greek uh, very much uh, talks about a change that occurred in the past. I'm going to get a little bit technical here, but try and stick. But do stick with me. Uh, if I tell you, uh, say the lights have been turned on, right? The way I framed that sentence, the lights have been turned on tells you a few things. It tells you that there was a time when the lights weren't on and that then someone turned them on and that that means that the lights are now on. Uh, John frames it, John frames these sentences in the same way. That's really important because it communicates what I was saying before, that the crucial fundamental difference between Christians and non-Christians is ultimately that we've experienced the grace of God. There was a time when our sins weren't forgiven, when we didn't know God, and when we, had, and when we were under the power of the evil one. But then God forgave us, caused us to know him, and gave us victory over the devil. And now that change characterizes our lives now. Our sins are forgiven We know him and we have overcome the evil one. Uh, As we saw last week as well, the decisive change came about through the work of Jesus. Remember last week we talked about being cleansed by his blood. uh, that That he is our advocate before the Father and so we are forgiven. We have come to know God as well because Jesus took on flesh. Uh, and revealed himself to us. John opened the, uh, the book with that assertion. Uh, we've overcome the evil one because Jesus resisted Satan's temptations and he died to free us from sin and from the fear of hell and he rose again as Lord of all. In Jesus, our sins are forgiven. In Jesus, we know him who is from the beginning. And in Jesus, we have overcome the evil one. Uh, Additionally, verse 8 tells us that in Jesus, we have the commandment of God uh, in us as a reality. True in us, John says, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. 
Like I said earlier then, this work of God must necessarily result in a difference between the lives of Christians and non-Christians. Our sins are forgiven, which means we should seek to avoid them. Uh, Perhaps if you were here last week, you remember Steve saying, can we sin? Yes. May we sin? No. We know him, we know him who is from the beginning. We know the Father, which means we seek to follow his will, as John says, obey his commandments, imitate his love. Uh, we have overcome the evil one, which means we should not submit ourselves to him any longer. We should not love the world over which he is the ruler. This commandment is true in him and in us. And so we seek to live it out. And I hope this becomes a really important encouragement for all of us. Uh, I hope you you don't go away from this sermon just feeling like uh, here's a list of ways that you're not living up and you need to do better. Uh, Perhaps you do need to uh, seek ways to put this into practice in the next week. I hope you do put it into practice. But more than that, I hope you remember the grace of God at work within you. All of the power to live a godly life doesn't come from within yourself, but from the work of God within you, from the work of Jesus on the cross, uh, from the work of the Spirit, as we spoke earlier. God's work within us means we have the power to live life God's way. Uh, And the logic works the other way too. Uh, Because God's power within us results in godly living, if we live God's way, then we can, then by reasoning, we can see that that is God at work within us. It's it's evidence of God's work within us. Uh, That's what John means when he says in verses 3 and 5, this is how we know that we are in him. Uh, As we'll go through 1 John, you'll see a whole bunch of tests people talk about john being a series of tests uh tests of life tests of doctrine um, so that we can know whether or not we are truly christian Uh, but the tests of one john aren't so much like a a driver's test uh, where the the instructor sits there and watches you closely to make sure if you uh if you're slipping up they'll take note of it so that they can fail you if you make any mistakes. Uh, it's, it's more like a, a medical screening test, um, like a pap smear or a, a fob test or one of those asymptomatic COVID tests that we all had to do whether we, uh, go, when we were going into uh, places. Uh, those tests are confirming uh, that a healthy person really is healthy. That is, they're about assurance. Remember, John says he's writing to you because your sins are forgiven, not because I wonder if your sins are forgiven. It's a test, but a test that you're meant to pass. Now, there are people who don't pass the test, and if you are one of those people, uh, please do, I would love to talk with you later um, about how you can be forgiven uh, if your life is characterised by 
the disobedience and the, uh, the worldliness and the hatred that John speaks is so characteristic of non-Christians. But if you do live your life in a way that John says is Christian, then his tests are meant to give you assurance and hope to strengthen your faith in the work of God within you. And yet, this assurance and hope shouldn't be a, shouldn't give you reason to rest on your laurels. Uh, rather, it should result in a, a, an even greater urgency and obligation to live life in the Christian way. <clears throat> uh, if Christians live differently from non-Christians in the way that we live, uh, because of God's work within us, then we should be actively seeking to maintain that difference, to live out that difference in the way that we live. Uh, Which leads us to the third and final question. How can we maintain the difference between Christians and non-Christians? How should we maintain the difference? Uh, Under the first point, I already spoke a fair bit about what it means to live these things out practically, so I won't... uh, I'll try not to repeat myself too much. Um, But note how John does use these verses to press the urgency of this. How important it is that we actually follow this pattern of life. Uh, Verse 6, John says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Uh, Now, when John says we ought to walk a certain way, he's not saying, uh, you know, we probably ought to do that if we can, if that's at all possible. Um, he's not sort of saying what he wishes and he'll settle for what he can get. Uh, the word translated ought is more of like an e- a legal obligation type language. Um, you, you might say if someone lives in Australia, they ought to pay taxes and they ought to obey the laws of the land. It's that sort of strong language. Uh, John is saying that Claiming to be a Christian requires certain things of you, that you walk just as Jesus walked, that you imitate his way of life, his obedience to the commands of Scripture. Uh, The way Jesus lived, the way he talked, the way he made decisions, the actions that he did, just as he walked, so you also must walk. As I said before, if God says to do something, that is enough. Whether you think it's worthwhile or not, keep his word. Whether you want to or not, keep his word. Even if it's just between you and God and it doesn't impact or hurt anyone else and it seems to have no significant consequences, keep his word. Because if you claim to know Jesus then you are obligated to walk just as he walked. Uh, Secondly, in verses 7 and 8, John talks about the commandment, the new commandment that Jesus gave, uh, which we read about in John 15, to love one another as he loved us. Uh, It's an old commandment in that it's rooted in the Old Testament. Uh, Leviticus 19.18, for example, says, You shall love your neighbour as yourself. Uh, it's, a new, it's a command exemplified in the new commandment, uh, empowered by the Spirit within us. 
Uh, Jesus exemplified it in his sacrifice as we read in John 15. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you when I laid down my life. Uh, It's a commandment that's binding on each and every one of us. We need to walk in love, honouring one another, uh, not letting hate divide us. Uh, As I was preparing this sermon, it struck me how John exemplifies intergenerational love, uh, which is something that we see so rarely, so lacking in our culture. A lot of things seem to divide our culture and age seems to be a big one. Uh, So much rhetoric around age, around generations, is negative. No, more than that, it's spiteful. It's derisive. It's derisive. It's slanderous. Uh, People my age talk derisively about boomers, Uh, that they're stuck in the past, that they hold on to their privilege, that they ignore the impact their decisions might have on others. Uh, Older people as well talk about kids these days, millennials, who have no respect for authority, waste all their time on their phones, always begging for handouts and wanting to ignore and tear down every good tradition and institution. Regardless of whether that is true, it's not loving. As Christians, we need to speak better about others, to honour others, not slander them. Especially when we talk about other Christians. Uh, Like John, us younger Christians can uh, honour and speak well of older Christians, older generations, for their long-standing, deep, settled knowledge of the eternal, unchanging God. Uh, younger Christians, honour and, uh, and uphold your forebears, their faith and their wisdom that's been tested again and again and found to be, as Peter says elsewhere, more precious than gold more enduring than gold, uh, which they are handing down to us as the next generations. Uh, And older Christians, would you too encourage and honour us, younger Christians, for the strength and vigour that comes not just from youthfulness, but from the passionate joy and faith of the fresh discovery of God's word? Uh, Would you remind us that compromise is not an option and that we have overcome the evil one uh, as we face a world of challenges uh, that haven't been faced by Western Christians in a very long time, as we seek to live out our Christian faith in a world and a context that's in many ways very different from the one you're used to. Would you assure us that we have overcome the evil one? Uh, Brothers and sisters, may we be a church that is knit together in love, bound together through our encouragement and honour of one another. May we be a vision of love in a divided and divisive culture. May we keep the new, old, spirit, Christ-inspired, spirit-empowered command of love 
And finally, verse 15, John says directly, do not love the world. Uh, John, in the previous verses, talked about commandments, talked about commandments, but this is uh, the one direct command in our passage. I think that shows how serious and urgent uh, it is that we do not love the world or the things of the world. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the mind and the pride in possessions. Materialist concerns are understandable in a materialist culture. But as Christians, we know that they will pass away. Don't be distracted Don't be deceived by the materialism of our culture when we know that the world will not last. Do not love the world. Rather, follow the will of God that lasts forever. There must be a clear difference between Christians and non-Christians. As I said earlier, the world is watching and the world will ask whether God really is at work in us if there is no difference between us and them. As well they should. We must live in such a way that there can be no doubt that God has made a difference in us. Though others ignore God's word, Christians, as Christians we must obey God's commands. We follow God's words because we follow him. Though others hate Christians, we must love one another. We imitate Christ's love because it shines as a light within us. Though others love the world and its dying pleasures, as Christians we resist it. We follow God's will because it is eternal Christ died to make it so, and we are called to live it. Let's pray. Lord God, there are strong words in this passage. John presents such a stark picture of the difference between Christians and non-Christians. And Lord, we pray that as, as he says, we would live it out. Uh, we thank you for your word which instructs us. We thank you for your spirit, uh, because of whom your word is, uh, is shining in our hearts. We thank you that you have brought us into the light, that you have caused us to know you, given us victory over the evil one, and forgiven us of our sins. So, Lord, we pray that we would live in a way that honours you and reflects our knowledge of you. In Christ's name. Amen.